Hey there, Angel Donovan with episode 99 of Dating Sex Relationships. Very close to the 100 mark, getting really excited about that here. Before we jump into today's show, I've been telling you a bit about this new program we have called Implant. I'm not going to talk about it a lot because you can check out the last two episodes where I told you more of those details. All I will say is this is something we're testing to really help guys like you change, change your behaviors and get better at this faster. If you want to check that out, learn more about it, see what we're up to, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash implant, I-M-P-L-A-N-T. That's implant. Today we're jumping into ethical non-monogamy again. We've done this before in episodes of polyamory, polygamy, and of course, swinging. And today we're coming back to swinging. We're revisiting this We looked at it from a female point of view that was in episode 93 with Swinging Milf. This time, we're going to jump in with a male point of view. And this, of course, Swinging differs to polyamory in that it's a lot more focused on short-term hookups. Some of them can last months, but generally it's a relatively short time period and more focused on sexual experience than longer-term relationships and the dynamics of the relationships itself. Having covered the bases in the previous episode, we jump into this subject in more depth. So we get to know swinging with someone who's been practicing it for over five years, so longer than swinging MILF. And uh, we're talking about the sexual experiences, the journey of self-growth, the practical tips on how to go about this and stay out of trouble, basically, and the swinger lifestyle in general. Is it for you? Is it not for you? Who's it for? Today's guest is Cooper Beckett. He started a website and podcast called Life on Swing Set in 2010. And this regularly tops the sexuality iTunes rankings. So if you're interested in Swing Set and you enjoy this interview, you want to check that out. His podcast and website are all about swinging polyamory and open relationships from the trenches, from people practicing it. So it's not just people talking, it's people actually doing it, living it. So, you know, that's obviously experiential, something we value a lot here also. Good stuff. Interestingly, Cooper, as many of you potentially are in this situation, he went from being really afraid of sex for much of his life. He's got a lot more comfortable with it today, obviously, than the average guy, even perhaps like 99% of guys, as you'll see in the interview. So that's an interesting journey. If you would like to get to where he is, then obviously this is going to be a good episode for you for kind of to learn how he got from being afraid all the way to feeling very satisfied and comfortable with his sex life. Cooper teaches classes and speaks at conferences, often on all of these related topics, so he's used to all of that. And he has a number one ranked Amazon bestseller in human sexuality also. That's called My Life on the Swing Set, Adventures in Swinging and Polyamory. So it's kind of like his journey. And one of the reviewers for that said, interestingly, it's the dirty cousin to Ethical Slut. Uh, So if you haven't seen Ethical Slut, it's a very well-known book. And of course, I interviewed one of the authors of Ethical Slut, Janet Hardy, back in episode 64. So if you're interested in polyamory, you want to check that out as well. So again, someone says this is a dirty cousin to Ethical Slut. So, you know, that's going to give you a bit of a preamble to what this interview is going to be like in comparison. A couple of other things is that, uh, to just set the context... Swinging MILF was relatively new to the scene, if you remember, and maybe you want to check out that interview first to get a bit of context and cover all the basics um, before we dive into this one, actually. And so, whereas Cooper has been in this lifestyle, I'm talking about it for five years, he's, he's done over 200 episodes on his podcast, and so we're going to go a lot deeper to more advanced topics today. So I hope you enjoy that. 
As usual, to get the show notes, the transcript, all the good stuff, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out episode 99 there. If you want to leave comments, I will personally answer them also. And if you want to get all of that information in your email inbox so you don't really have to think about it, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter and put your email in there. And thus you'll get those awesome notes every time an episode comes out. Now let's get into today's interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Cooper, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Yeah, great. So give us a quick background about yourself. How did you get into swinging briefly? How old are you? Those kind of like details, just to set the context a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in my late mid-30s. And uh, I got into swinging because uh, my ex-wife and I had realized that we had very little sexual experience beyond each other. We got married very young. And we realized that one of the most significant issues that we were encountering in our relationship was the desire to fuck other people. And of course, since we were good vanilla people, we didn't talk about that because you shouldn't talk about that. And once we did talk about that, we thought, well, that and the only way to process that is to get divorced and uh, move on. Or I suppose there's always swinging. So you just said one word. I do want to make sure people understand vanilla. We have mentioned it on the show before, but it's always good to give a quick definition. Well, vanilla is a, a somewhat derogatory term for non-adventurous people. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And that's why it's a somewhat derogatory term. Really, it's funny because every faction of sexuality, like the BDSM people, the kink people, uh, poly swingers, they all seem to gravitate to the term vanilla as being people who don't do the thing that I do. I guess it's referring to monogamous, the typical monogamous marriage situation mostly, or perhaps a monogamous couple, girlfriend, boyfriend kind of stuff. Mainstream, middle of the road, that there kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's just I recognize that as we say a word like that, it does sort of imply a derogatory point of view, I think. Yeah, we could just call it the norm. The norm. Um, but then it wouldn't make us sound as cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Lately, uh, my friend Reed Mahalko, who's a, an amazing sex educator, uh, is calling them muggles. Muggles. Like Harry Potter. Um, yeah, so. one of my friends is a big fan of Harry Potter and an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> I never understood it, but there you go. Maybe I was just born in the wrong generation. Well, that that uh, could be. Yeah, it could be. Once we realized that we both wanted to fuck other people by having that conversation, an offhanded comment on, on my part, well, there's always swinging, actually very rapidly became, uh, well, let's try this. So how long have you been married? I had been married uh, seven years at that point. Great. And so it kind of run its course a little bit and you felt, yeah. so you were in your early twenties or something when you married? Yeah. Oh yeah. We, we got married 
I think she was 21 when we got married. I've had quite a few friends who got divorced from marrying at that kind of age. We're kind of young. I mean, if I don't know if you look back, getting married at that age, did you know anything about yourself? Did you know what you wanted, these kind of relationships in life? And Oh, no, I was following a script. Everybody follows that script. You meet someone, you date for a while, you get married, you have children, and eventually you die. It's amazing how easily you get on the track and then just stop looking at everything outside of the track. What we realized is that as soon as we started looking beyond the acceptable way to live your life, we found this amazing community. We found this amazing emotional and sexual fulfillment that we never experienced anything like in the past. And it's why I'm an evangelist, honestly, for swinging and for non-monogamy. It's because it's not for everybody, and I don't think everybody should do it. And I don't think it's better than monogamy if monogamy makes you happy. What I think is that most people are monogamous because it's the default, not because they want to be monogamous, not because they should be monogamous. It's the exploration that tells you who you really are. And the discovery of who you really are is one of the most fulfilling things in life. And so few people ever actually go through that. Absolutely. It's uh, something someone's come up on this show before. We're definitely on board with that. I think most of the guys have had it pounded into, into them a little bit on the show already, which is a good thing. Become ourselves, which isn't an easy journey. Uh, to give a highlight of how swinging has been for you, could you tell us about a couple of your best experiences or like the best memories or the things that stand out most for you? It's been five years now. Is that correct? It's been five years doing the podcast and website. It's been six years swinging. Man, that's longer than longer than you think sometimes. It's a long time. And there's probably a lot of experiences packed into that six years. As I understand, it's quite an active lifestyle. Well, especially when you're going from having a single other sexual partner to now there's the buffet in front of you. It's real easy to just leap in and start experiencing life. I, I always like the quote, um, the, the carpe diem quote, that you suck the marrow out of the bones of life. It quickly became that. And the, so there's the most significant moment for me actually wasn't even sexual. It was uh, very early on, I think a month after we started swinging, uh, was our first play party that we'd gone to. And I met someone at the party who was friends with some other playmates of ours. And she was telling a story and just talking and leaned forward and put her hand on, on my knee. And I realized that besides our new friends that we were playing with, which is part of the script, I'd never actually, as an adult, been touched by another adult because adults don't touch each other. You know, we have this weird, there's a lot of boundaries. There's a lot of uh, walls that we put up. And so there's really a dearth of touch, be it emotional, be it sexual. There's just, we're not touching each other. We're touching only these limited people. And the funny thing is how meaningful that touch on the shoulder, touch on the arm, touch on the leg can be when there's no sexuality attached to it. And we close ourselves off from that. So that really stood out for me. That was like eye-opening, like, I belong here. This is this is it. So that was here. because you felt comfortable with that 
Mm-hmm. That was someone you'd only just met. That was I had met her that night. Yeah. Right. Right. Great. And it sounds like the, the main thing is there because sometimes people touch each other, but they don't like have a lingering touch as on some like the knee where they. So did she? She left it there for a while. She did. Yeah. Yeah. And and at that point, it was still just all about our conversation. So you felt she was more comfortable with touch because of the swing set lifestyle. Yes. Yes. Definitely. And I noticed that the nice thing about being in a community of sex positive people is they are far more likely to hug and kiss hello. And not everybody has to do that. And that shouldn't be a barrier for entry. You shouldn't be afraid of that. But if you are that type of person, if you like that uh, type of interaction, it's really just great to be able to engage like that with people absolutely and it's something it takes a while to get used to i don't know if you were you were very tactile you, you mentioned in your book you're quite a tactile person i am yeah yeah so you've always been a big tactile but maybe you inhibited yourself because you felt you're in this world where people don't do that yeah exactly and and i inhibited myself without even realizing i was inhibiting myself that was what it was it was this eye-opening thing that oh my god i can do this and this is me and this is what i want and it was such a little thing and mind altering. It sounds like a little thing, but actually I know also that it's actually a big thing you're talking about being comfortable with this physical touch and, and presence. It was something I went through in a different light because I lived abroad in some Latino countries like Spain, Argentina, where people, I've actually had an experience where I was at a business meeting and a girl put her hand on my knee, <laughs> just like, it's funny because it, it's just like your story. But we were in a business meeting and it shocked the hell out of me. I was like, is she make, hitting on me? Like I'm talking to the director right now. It was a very uncomfortable situation for me. So just to put into perspective, you can come from this place where it's really inappropriate to be touching other people. And it actually inhibits your dating lifestyle, your relationship lifestyle very extremely, I'd, I'd say. It takes a while to get over that and become comfortable with it. But to go back to why you feel you're a tactile person and that was inhibited, is that because in relationships you were very tactile, like naturally when you were comfortable with the person? Yeah. And when I developed these relationships where that was agreed upon as being okay, I'm a big fan of hugging people hello and goodbye. And I had a few friends who that was cool with. And so I was very happy about that. And to be able to go from just this tiny circle to a lot of people that I see on a regular basis that I can just embrace hello. It's funny, vanilla people don't know how to hug either. <laughs> I'd love to hear the details on this. This is an interesting line of conversation. Well, okay, like you look at two men hugging and two men hugging usually involves that I'm going to shake your hand first and then I'm going to wrap one arm around you so the hands are in the middle and I'm going to pat you on the back a bit. That's not a hug. And it has nothing to do with my my bisexuality that I like receiving hugs from men and women. It's that you can experience this nice connection. I have a really good friend in this lifestyle, and, and we're fairly vanilla-ish friends. But we can give each other that nice, warm hug. It's often said that men lost in the bargain. Women are allowed to have really, really close relationships with each other. And men really aren't for fear of, well, what if that means I'm gay or what if people think I'm gay? And I think that's a real shame because that you can bond really closely with another man and not have it be 
sexual or romantic at all and just have it be an intense relationship. And I think physical contact is indicative of that when you can, when you can have physical contact with other people. I also go to things called uh, cuddle parties and it's kind of an abstract and odd concept, but it, it speaks to the same thing that we are a touch deprived society. And because touch is so strongly wrapped up in sexuality, that sort of limits it if you're monogamous, if you're not in a relationship. And so something like a cuddle party is a place for you to go to touch and not have to worry about what else it implies. And I think that's that's really what I'm very rambling trying to get at here is, is that touch does not have to imply things beyond, you know, a hug does not imply more to come. And once you can recognize that and be in a community that recognizes that, you can you can really engage with that. Absolutely. We've talked about a fair number of times how physical confidence is important just in the dating relationships context. Oh, so yeah. We're talking about being comfortable with it and everything in, in lots of situations. But if you're not comfortable physically in the dating context, it can kind of hurt you, make the situation weird, make some awkward, all of these kind of negative side effects. From that perspective, in your relationships and so on, as your can you look back and like it see as your physical confidence planed out? I don't know, like balanced out to be to normality as you see it today. Things have got easier. It, things have definitely gotten easier. I'm still in tremendously unconfident. I I had really poor experiences in junior high, middle school, and high school. And I've always had some tremendous body shame because we. You know, that's something that is instilled in America is be ashamed of your body. And I'm a bigger guy, so that factors into it because who's attractive? Well, not the fat guy. It just started to click fairly recently, maybe in the last two years for me, is that the confidence is the most important thing far more important than attractiveness because confidence is attractive and a lack of confidence is distinctly unattractive. And that's a hard thing to hear because if you're not confident and you're told lack of confidence is unattractive, I go into a mental spiral where it just gets worse and worse and worse. But if you take that as a, as a goal and what really changed things for me is um, one of my favorite conclusions I ever came to was, um, I, I wrote an essay about it in the book. It's called uh, Sexy Schrodinger. The Schrodinger's cat is a mental exercise, and it's, it's quantum physics, and it's a number of different things. But it's the idea that if you have a cat in a box, and the box is closed, the cat actually exists in both states, living and dead, because you don't know. And until you open the box, you won't know. So before you open the box, the cat is both living and dead at the same time. It's a, it's a very heady thought, but I boiled it down to how it actually applies in dating, in approaching people. And what it comes down to is the, it seems like a binary. The cat is alive or dead. So it's a 50, 50 thing. But if you take it and, and give it an actual real life application, there's three options. Either one, I open the box and the cat's alive and I get to play with the cat. Two, I open the box and the cat's dead and I don't get to play with the cat. But there's also the third option where I don't open the box, 
and I don't get to play with the cat, it doesn't matter. So two out of these three options lead to me not getting to play with the cat. If you apply that to approaching people, one, I approach the girl and ask her out or to fuck or whatever. And she says, yes, I get to play with the girl. Two, I approach her and she says, no, and I don't get to play with the girl. But three, I don't approach the girl and I don't get to play with the girl. And I think a lot of people who lack confidence are choosing failure because they're doing number three. They're not approaching. So rather than risk getting a no, but also risk getting a yes, they take all risk out of the equation and give themselves the no. Once I recognized that, it it perplexed me why I would ever take the 100% chance of no, which is not approaching, instead of going and taking the chance of yes. And once I realized that, it was a big change. It it flipped it for you. It was basically a mental switch. Yeah. I think everyone has to find their own mental switch, and hopefully some of the guys can relate directly with the one you found, right? Basically, which switched it for you. When And I think what really got me there was I was chatting with a, a girl that I was completely in love with in high school. I told her that I was completely in love with her and blah, blah, blah. And she said, why didn't you ever ask me out? And so that was me choosing the no by not asking her out. And that made me realize that, you know what? I have lots of opportunity in this lifestyle. And if I can accept what a no might be because I'm choosing it for myself, really there's no reason not to try at that point. Actually, I would even take it up one more degree is like, at least if you ask, you learn as well. Absolutely. You know, so you're actually getting a benefit even if it isn't. And the key is it gets easier every time. As well. Right. Well, not for everyone. We can't say that for everyone. Some some people take rejection quite hard. Uh, but if you have the right mindset about it, which you obviously do, then it becomes not a big deal. As long as you have the right mindset, the more you do something, then it becomes easier, no matter what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I will say I talk a good talk, but I'm still afraid to approach people some of the time. You know, it's interesting that it never 100% goes away. I don't know. I used to be a pickup artist, and I would approach girls all the time, and it became... Um, a thing that was really, really easy. But then I got into relationships and stuff and I didn't do it for a while. And then, and, you know, I broke up in a relationship and, and it was a slightly difficult, not for very long, just for a couple of days or whatever, but it does come back and, or it can come back in a different context. Like, I don't know if you had some kind of hit in your life, a negative hit. Uh, I don't know what it is. Like, uh, it could be financial. It could be whatever it is, right? We all get uh, negative hits from time to time. It can affect your confidence in other areas. And all of a sudden you like, you feel a bit more wary about doing this in, in this case we're talking about approaching where in fact if we hadn't taken that negative hit whatever it was we wouldn't think about it at all so you've had a lot of good experiences and it sounds like it's taking you on quite a sort of a life journey have you had any negative experiences like what would be your worst experience to give people an idea of what, what could terrible terrible thing could happen if i decided to go swinging well first of all you're not going to be compatible with everyone and you're going to probably try to force yourself into compatibility with some people just because you think you should. And I did that a lot at the beginning because of my major self-image issues and self-worth issues. I 
fucked a number of people early on in swinging that I probably, I'm not even going to say probably, I'm, I guarantee that if the same option was given to me now, I would not have sex with at least five of them. That's a pretty big deal. It is. It's another emotional growth thing. It's another learning experience. It feels like to me that I I would say yes because I would get that little voice in my head that would say, who the hell are you to say no to this person? Would it be when someone asked you? Yeah. Was it social pressure or what? Or situationally, like um, my, my partner uh, was playing with this woman's husband and she was here and I was here and... Well, we better do this. I should be fine. I should be happy. Because but you would be the party pooper. If yeah, and that's situation. that's called yeah. taking one for the team in swinging, and it's something that anyone who's ever done it says don't do it. <laughs> and I firmly agree. Don't do it. You you should never put yourself in a situation because you feel obligated to be there. That is not a good plan. Would that damage your relationship with your partner, like your wife in this case? Well, I think it's the fear is, okay, so we're on this, uh, you know, two on two date, which is how most swinging happens. She really likes that guy. I don't really like his wife, but look at how much she likes that guy. So I don't want to, I don't want to be the guy who shuts it down because she's going to be so disappointed and he's going to be so disappointed but I think that's the same thing as the self-selecting no. It's I'm giving myself the bad situation. I'm taking all the disappointment on myself and I'm forcing it. And that's the reason we say don't do it. To give people a little bit of background, when you go out on a, a double date, basically, which is, you know, as you say, is, is the norm in swinging, then it's not done for you for basically, the, the say, in this case, your wife and the, and the other guy who like each other to go off and you guys to just have coffee or something because you're not that int into each other. That kind of setup doesn't happen or... Well, it does happen, actually, to people who communicate well. And the problem in general is, is it's really hard to communicate. That would happen if you're able to say to this other person, you know what, I'm not really interested, but I'd like to hang out with you. And that's an incredibly... Uh, self-aware place to get, to be able to reject, but then figure out how to make the best out of it. Because rejection's hard to give and hard to receive. And we encourage people to give open and honest rejection, but we don't always because it's hard. And we don't always take it well because it's hard to take it, even though we want it. Like, I want to be told if someone's not interested in me so I don't sit there wondering. Because that moment of Band-Aid ripoff is much better than if I'm at a party and I'm spending the entire night wondering, okay, now is, is she interested in me? I actually have no idea. And because I'm afraid to ask, I don't find out. Or I find out in the, the worst possible way where she goes off with someone else. And it's like, oh, I guess, I guess not. Okay. I've been very lucky that I never had any really bad experiences. There was one party where, uh, it was very early and my, my wife at the time was getting this tremendous amount of attention. And it was because she, you know, we were very new and she was realizing this, oh my God, I'm, I'm this attractive to this many people. And oh my God, 
this is so much fun. And really, it is much easier for the women in non-monogamy because the, the men are all over the place. And so she was having a wonderful time and she was playing with a lot of people. And I was just getting angrier and angrier because I wasn't playing with anybody. But in, in hindsight, it was completely my fault that I wasn't playing with anybody. I wasn't asking anybody either. I was just sitting there and being the victim in the situation. And she was having a great time. So really, why on earth would I be mad that she is having so much fun? Except for the fact that I wish I was having that much fun. But that's not her fault. That was my fault. That sounds like, as I understand, that's something that commonly comes up in the swing set lifestyle, which causes arguments, especially for newbies, I guess. Yeah. It's a foreign lifestyle because we don't have any good examples of it. We don't have any media does not show us this in a positive light. When it does show us non-monogamy, it's usually on like CSI or special victims unit and the non-monogamous people are the bad guys. And so we don't have these positive examples of how to navigate our way through the issues that can come up with non-monogamy. That's the number one reason that I started the podcast and website is because I felt like when I was coming up, there was no resource that really was honest with me that there are problems and was still welcoming to me. As a newbie, I felt very distinctly that most of the resources online were, hey, it's awesome, and there's never any problems, and it's probably not for you. And one of the number one reasons I felt like it was probably not for you is I did get into it to fix a problem in my relationship. That problem was we wanted to fuck other people, which is actually the number one problem non-monogamy can fix in a relationship. But all the websites say, if your relationship's not perfect first, if your sex with your partner is not the greatest sex in the world first, and then you come into non-monogamy, it's going to destroy your relationship. Which might be a good thing. I mean, it might, yeah, absolutely. If your relationship is, is fragile enough and... It might fast track what was going to happen anyway Yeah, over a, a longer time and then thus enable you to get on with life and both of you. So I don't know if it's such a bad thing. It's not. What's really interesting is I learned about this concept called impermanence and impermanence when it comes to relationships is the recognition that we've been sold this line that the only successful relationship is the one that lasts forever, which is bullshit all at the beginning because no relationships last forever. That takes us to the next level, which is the only successful relationship is the one where one of you dies. Because that is a relationship that lasted until one of you actually died. And that's really what we tell ourselves, uh, especially in, in America. And if that's really the judge of a successful relationship, isn't that a horrifying thing that it only works if one person dies? So the idea of impermanence is the recognition that just because relationships end and the vast majority of relationships that anyone gets into are going to end. That's the nature of the game, especially if you're monogamous. You, you know, really, all the relationships end until one doesn't, right? So there's value in every one of these relationships. And some obviously don't have a lot of value. But even if the value is learning something new about yourself or learning, I'm never going to do that again. 
that's value. So if you embrace the fact that things aren't permanent and relationships do run their course, I think we throw ourselves into the end of relationships being based almost entirely around fights and we demonize our exes because that's the easy way to deal with the fact that our relationship failed, which is the worst possible way to look at it. Because if we don't look at it as a failure, we can actually be okay with it ending. I talk about my divorce as being my relationship with my ex-wife was like a vacation. And like any long vacation, it is amazing for big periods of it. But then, you know, vacation fatigue starts to creep in and you start thinking about the stuff going on at home. And maybe you're getting snippy because you've been in close proximity for too long. And God forbid if you go canoeing with her, you know, so it's just because the vacation ended. And even if the vacation ended badly, it doesn't mean that the first seven days of that vacation weren't amazing. And that there are tremendous memories coming out of that vacation. The majority of my marriage was really good, especially the, the years of non-monogamy. Those were the best in our, our entire marriage. What ultimately happened is we had issues that non-monogamy didn't solve. And those issues are the same that everybody has. We had issues with, um, finances. We had issues with each other's friends. We had issues with each other's likes and dislikes, obsessions and non-obsessions. And ultimately those things don't easily get solved. So rather than stay in a relationship that we were starting to just lose each other in, we realized that we are much better off separately than together. And we split and we are both very happy now and we are both still non-monogamous and I don't regret a moment of my relationship because without my relationship I wouldn't be where I am right now I wouldn't know most of the people I know I wouldn't be living with the people I'm living with I wouldn't have the amazing partner that I have right now that is all due to my ex-wife and that relationship. And so looking at the positive is gratifying and it keeps us from despair. How long were you uh, in the swinging lifestyle while you, you guys were still married? Uh, we were swinging for four and a half years. Okay. Well, so it's a recent divorce. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So you were married over 10 years. That's a big achievement, I'd say. Yeah. I was interested if we tried to take a snapshot of immediately before you got into swinging and we took another one today. What would be the biggest differences in your life? Um, I, well, I'm a much happier person now, simply by virtue of being open and open doesn't need to be open sexually. It's just being willing to see what comes. I feel like I'm a lot more Zen now. I don't obsess about outcomes as much because the journey is part of the value. How do you think you've got there? It kind of connects with what you were saying about relationships, but it really does is being open to the uncertainty, right? So relationship can just end and it's, it's going to be okay. Um, how did you get there? 
via swinging? Is it something the swinging lifestyle helps you with? Or I think a lot of it is just point of view. And what I recognize about non-monogamy and, and really any alternative lifestyle is you're looking at yourself and saying that this thing is not working for me. And this thing can be uh, monogamy, it can be a religion, it can be any mainstream societal thing that you've been living. This thing is not working for me. Let me explore what else there is. And once you recognize that you are not part of that mainstream, you continually sort of are looking at what other options are out there for you and what paths you can look at. And I was pretty convinced at the ripe old age of 29 that I was done growing and changing. I was the person I was always going to be. And that's the snapshot before non-monogamy. I was a suburban husband. I was probably not interested in children, but, you know, keep it open. And these were my friends, and this was my life, and this was what it was going to be until the great light switch turns off at the end. Opening up to non-monogamy was such a sideline. Like, it was, we veered into this other direction. And then exploring the possibility that I was bisexual veered into another direction. And once I started opening up my mind to new things, uh, I started exploring BDSM. And I realize I'm a switch. I'm both dom and sub. But it's not my thing. I enjoy it. But it's not my thing. But then I explore over here. And I explore new avenues to work. And new ways to produce content. And new ways to make money. And new ways to interact with people in a business environment. And that's an off-ramp over here. And once you realize you're not actually finished growing and developing, then you can start actually growing and developing because you don't feel you're perfect as you are. You have to want it. You have to want to learn more about yourself, obviously. But if you do want it and you do explore, there's so much more to life than we've been told there is. And we don't really find it until we try. And I love the fact that I'm not finished right now. And I love the fact that I don't know what I'm doing because that means there's more to learn. I feel I think there's a great two snapshots there, it, you know, because it really sounds like it's really all encompassing the way it's changed your life. Right. So it's, it's kind of impact the way you look at the world and your exploratory nature. And would you say there's been a transfer of confidence as well to other areas where it's business or wherever? Because this is something I've seen a lot in uh, the dating industry. A lot of the guys, for instance, who were mentioned in the game, and, and I knew over 10 years ago, have all got their own businesses or, or entrepreneurs or doing all these other things, which they weren't doing before that time. So it's definitely something that I've seen in many, many people that exploring this part of your life, and not necessarily swinging, but just sexuality in general, definitely helps with that. Yeah, because it, it flips the perspective. And I think we often settle. We realize, okay, this is where we are and this is it. And if we're settling, we're not trying to change ourselves. We're not trying to learn more. It's such a wonderful thing to, to apply these new revelations 
and use them in everywhere. And the number one thing I learned to do is communicate. We also have this script that you don't talk about things that are unpleasant. And that's actually the worst thing you can do with things that are unpleasant is not talk about them. I thought this came out in your book, actually. Uh, you were talking about the first time you went to a swinging date and you went to the date and, you know, it was this conversation. It was quite straightforward. But then you went away and you and your wife, you had a lot more sexual communication conversations that week because you knew you were going to meet the couple in a week's time. Yeah. I mean, this is what I felt. I'm kind of like putting the view on it, but I felt like it forced you to start talking about it more because you knew like in a week's time you were like oh we're going to be talking to this couple again and they've got an expectation there's an expectation of a situation and we got to really know what we want out of this i often say that non-monogamy forced me to learn communication like forced because it will blow up in your face if you don't learn how to communicate and the best part of that is communication helps you everywhere being willing to say what you actually mean and being willing to ask for what you want is probably the most valuable lesson of communication lessons because people don't ask for what they want. And people who do ask for what they want, by and large, are able to get it some of the time. Absolutely, absolutely. In other aspects of life, when we're trying to in self-development and stuff, they say, you know, look at the people around you because they define you. It's kind of interesting the mechanism you brought up there is because you started interacting with this new community that started forcing you to learn to sexually communicate. As you say, it was a blow up in your face, right? So you've got this positive pressure that you put on yourself. All right, for good reasons, but it, it's always been there since, I guess. Uh, this positive pressure in your life to, to learn to better communicate and so on because you're getting like, given new situations. Could you explain kind of how that works in the swinging community? It comes down to you're being presented with things that you have no idea how to deal with and you have to quickly be able to assess them. and figure out a way to deal with it. And, you know, deal with sounds negative. I mean, some of the things you're being presented with are, hey, would you like to have a threesome right now? Right. On the floor. You just say yes or no. <laughs> yes, I do. And let me figure out logistically how that works. Let me figure out emotionally how that will work for me. And I think it's not about blindly throwing yourself into anything because that's a way to make mistakes that are not overcomable. It's about learning to assess things really quickly and then being willing to take that leap, you know, being willing to jump in because you can say, yes, okay, this pings all these things that are positive and it pings one or two that are negative. I'm going to outweigh the negative with the positive and go. Yes, let's have a threesome right now. Does that even come close to answering the question? Yeah, that's, that's fine. Yeah, that, that is good. You brought up also that you discovered your bisexuality. I don't, I don't know exactly how this happened. Or is it because of swinging that you discovered that? Like basically some guy proposed you and you're like, actually, I'm more interested than I thought I would be. Or how did this situation come up and how did you deal with it emotionally? Well, I'd always had um, inklings that I was interested in men as well. And because I was a mainstream monogamous person, I incredibly added shame to it and internalized it and said, I shouldn't do that because that seems to be the way most people deal with that. And when we started swinging, I looked at it as look at 
how much enjoyment my my wife is getting out of stuff with with women that she was interested and now she gets to do it and it's amazing and she's loving it and it's a life-changing thing for her why not explore this little inkling i've had this little thing that has kept coming up over time i made the initial mistake of wanting to just get that first experience out of the way and um had a craigslist hookup thing with a guy and it was not a good experience and he looked nothing like he said he would look and ultimately it was one of the saddest hand jobs i've ever gotten and and i got out of there and really was not happy with the situation and i realized that for me in general and i say in general only because i haven't had this disproved yet my bisexuality presents when it's in a situation with women as well as men. I think that's just because I'm not as interested in men. So I'm not firmly bisexual. I'm not that I could go either way, relationships, sex, dating. I look at it as I'm a two on the Kinsey scale. I'm more sexually interested in men than anything else. In women. No, I'm, I'm more sexually interested in men as opposed to relationshiply interested in men. Oh, oh. Just for the Kinsey scale you mentioned, how does that work? Kinsey scale is, um, so Dr. Kinsey did this great sex survey in the 50s. And his scale started at zero and zero was heterosexual and went to six and six is homosexual. And three is exactly in the center where you are 50% heterosexual, 50% homosexual, just as likely to be with a man as a woman. So I put myself as a two, which means I'm not just as likely, but I am likely to do it. A lot of people consider one to be bi-curious. I'm, I'm interested, but I don't know. And zero is I have no interest whatsoever in being with the same sex. And I am very careful not to limit myself. Like, I still think there, there is a possibility that I will meet a guy that I am interested in having a romantic relationship with. So I'm not ruling anything out. Because why rule things out? Life's way, way too short to rule things out. And the second bisexual experience was sort of a surprise because... Um, <laughs> It was me, another guy, and, and a female, and she was very interested in uh, sucking both of our cocks at the same time. And so if you have never been in that situation, it does require a lot of maneuvering because if you're standing, hips are in the way, so you can't really be next to each other. <laughs> and oddly, the I mean, the ideal position for this is sort of legs over legs, Balls pressing against each other, cocks pressing against each other, because then it's one big mouthful. You're painting a very crazy picture. <laughs> <laughs> so you're immediately, I mean, you go from, and in swinging, bisexuality is just really, at best, not done often, at worst, not approved of. And so when when you get your balls against another guy's and your shafts against each other, and both of you are trying to help maneuver, so you're already touching each other's cocks. <laughs> it was a situation that just sort of developed from there. It was a great experience, and I realized, yeah, I do enjoy playing with guys. And it 
it happens far less frequently than I'd like, and it's only because male bisexuality is very, very, very invisible. And the only way I often find out someone's bisexual is when they hear that I'm bisexual, because then they feel I'm a safe person to tell. And that's one of the reasons I'm so upfront about it. You were saying in your book, everyone on the Swinger websites classes themselves as heterosexual. Most of the bisexual men I know are listed as heterosexual on the Swinger dating sites. And I was too, because I was told that, you know, if you want to get dates, you shouldn't be bisexual. And the reason I've recently come to this reason, and uh, it's kind of a distressing one, is I really feel like the very, very hetero men who are afraid of bisexual guys, because that's what it seems to be, is they, they don't want a guy coming there and coming on to them. And what that says to me is they are afraid of being treated the way they have been treating women for their entire life. They are all about, I'm going to come on to people whether they're interested or not. I'm going to ask to fuck people whether they're interested or not. What would the most terrifying thing be to that person is a guy who they're not interested in coming on to them when they're not interested and wanting to fuck them when they're not interested. It's offensive to me, the, the idea that just because I'm bisexual, if I'm in a situation with a guy who's not bisexual, I will be unable to help myself and I will leap on him consensual be damned and fuck him whether he wants to be involved or not, just because I'm bisexual. Is there a large percentage of guys who are bisexual? Is it like 10% in the swinger community or... Well, I mean, we really have no idea, but you know, if Kinsey's numbers are to be believed, 15% of the population is bisexual. And with the percentage of swingers, female swingers who are bisexual being sky high, it really stands to reason that the percentage of male bisexuals in swinging would also be higher than the general population. Right, right. Of course it would. And so women is it 80%? You said it, like sky high, is that virtually all women? Again, it's, it's uh, I would say, yeah, probably 80%, but I have no facts to back that up. In people I have met, I think I've met two swinging females over the years who are hetero. And I've, I've met a lot of swinging females. That's, yeah, that sounds like a pretty incredible stat there. So I guess where I uh, wanted to go over that point is I, I think, uh, first of all, you brought up Kinsey. Um, there's a great film, like Hollywood film style with Liam Neeson about the Kinsey story. If you don't know about Kinsey and the work he did to open up sexuality, discover stuff, check that out. Um, but this scale is interesting. And I just wanted the guys at home to kind of get a feeling for that. You can be like 10 percent, you know, homosexual or whatever you want to call it. You can move from this zero to six in cases any guys at home who feel, you know, have some, some of these inklings and they feel like they're homosexual and they don't like it and they, or they don't like the feelings and there's shame and stuff out there. So I just wanted to bring that up so that they're kind of highlighted as to the reality of the situation, um, that, that a lot of people are a little bit bisexual in some areas. And as you say, in some situations, you've been in specific situations which kind of worked for you in that area. Yeah. Situationally bisexual is a thing. That's okay. And what I really like to try to tell swinging males is that if you want to try something, if you want to, if you're in a situation with another guy and he's cool with it and you want to go down on him, you're not flipping a switch. You're not 
suddenly gay because you had a cock in your mouth. You're just not. Gay is about how you identify. So unless you wake up the next morning and suddenly identify as gay, you're not gay. I really believe that if you have a strong sense of self, a strong sense of who you are, you can try absolutely anything and come through it being the same person. And you may discover something that you really like. You may discover something that you like a little bit and can add to your repertoire. That's something I noted in your book, actually. You said that a lot of swingers have a rule they should try something once to see if they like it and then again, just in case they did it wrong the first time. In case they did it yeah. wrong, yeah. Because if we if we immediately jettison something that we didn't like because of one instance, like that bad first bisexual experience I had, I never would have tried it again, and I wouldn't have that wonderful extra part of my sexuality. So I, I recommend, if you have any inkling, find a way to explore it, because you may not like it, and that's okay. Then you'll know, but you may love it, and that's awesome, because then you know. And of course, that goes for innumerable things that you've tried. Um, oh, yeah. Really, what, really anything as long as it's uh, safe, sane, and consensual. What are the most interesting things you tried? Oh. In, like, I, mean, I don't know if interesting, but like the things that you would never thought that you would try, and they turned out to be uh, pretty cool things that you do more routinely these days. Being naked outside was one. <laughs> I do an... So that's, sleep, so that's like having sex outside? No, be, being naked outside and having sex outside. I do an annual trip to a resort in Mexico called Desire, which is, uh, I like to call it Sandals for Swingers. It's a resort that is perfectly fine with uh, extensive sexuality. And so I remember the first time I was there, you walk out the door and you're naked, and I was holding on to the uh, doorknob. The door was still open behind me, and I was standing out in, in the public area naked, and I realized that once I closed that door and let go of the doorknob, I was naked outside. It was bizarrely terrifying at the moment. It has become one of the most fun things I do, and I love being naked. And, and again, for someone with body shame issues, it's a major thing to be willing to be naked, to be willing to expose yourself. And on our most recent trip, because we lead a trip every year, on our most recent trip, we had 150 people in the the welcome atrium area of the resort and there was a stage there for another thing they had going on but we were doing our welcoming and we were using the stage because of that and i <laughs> i went up on stage in thigh high rainbow socks chuck taylors a top hat and a feather boa and nothing else to welcome people to this resort and what the message i wanted to give them is you can be absolutely anyone you want to be here. And you shouldn't allow any preconceived notions of who you are to get in the way of your exploration. Because that's, that's limiting. And why limit yourself? Why take yourself out of monogamy, which is the biggest box we put ourselves in in society, the most heavy box we put ourselves in, and put ourselves in another box? Why leave that shackles behind only to shackle yourself in another direction? It's perplexing to me. It doesn't make any sense. I can tell you that I have had the most amazing experiences because I've stopped prejudging situations. Just letting it flow. 
So you're talking about things you, you're using to make the most of the lifestyle. How would you say, you know, what would be the practical tips if someone was to get into the swinger lifestyle on how to make the most out of it, get the most out of the experience? Um, communicate constantly, over communicate with your partner, talk about everything. You know, I felt this came up and I feel like something, I feel like I'm feeling a little jealous here and I'm trying to figure out how to process it. I don't expect you to do anything about it, but I'm, I'm feeling it. The communication thing is enormous. Practicalities for swinging is don't prejudge your potential playmates. You know, I had a very specific rigid age range in mind when I started swinging. So I started swinging at 29 and I put a 10 years in either direction age range on it. And three weeks later, the first woman I actually had penetrative penis in vagina sex with was 46 at the time. And still later, the greatest playmate I've ever had just turned 60 and is absolutely amazing. And I never would have experienced that had I stuck with my rigidity. I never would have experienced being a sub tied to a St. Andrew's cross in a party in San Francisco had I stuck to my, I'm not really into BDSM thing. Um, I never would have been able to uh, suck a cock had I stuck by my, oh, this, this didn't work for me thing. So the, the more you can let go of this is what I want, you know, obviously do that because that's one of the reasons you're exploring. So if you have a list, go for it. Find the people who can help you do the list. You want to experience uh, an orgy? Find it. Make it happen. But don't limit yourself because there are so many things you'd have no idea you want until you see them presented to yourself. And if you, if you decide that I'm not interested in that person because of these things, but then they present you an amazing opportunity, you'll immediately go, ah, no, no, I'm not going to try that. And the, the most value I've ever gotten out of anything is, is trying new things and trying things I thought I wouldn't like, because that's where surprise lives. And surprise is awesome. It is it's exciting. It's a necessity for learning. I think the guys who listen to this podcast and, and get more stuck than others, I think it's because they're not willing to try something new that it's, it's one of the things that holds them back. They have a, or they some, sometimes have really kind of rigid, narrow views of, of what life should be like, or, you know, or relationships should be like, and so on. And that lack of flexibility seems to be one of the bigger things holding them back from developing this aspect of the life and getting over all sorts of things like confidence, just doing learning and new things and new ways to do it, better ways to do things. One of the things you mentioned in your book was that you can learn from porn. And I wanted to bring that up because it's an interesting idea that we've had people on here, scientists, who have explained how there's a lot of men today who've been damaged by porn, by overuse of it. And I'm sure you saw the film from one of the actors uh, from Dark Knight Rises. Can't remember his name right now. But anyway, he, he made this film where, you know, he was... Oh, uh, you're talking about Don Don John. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the uh, the uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. There you go. He's got a long name as well. Yeah, that was great. That yeah, was great. and it kind of illustrated exactly what we've experienced with some of the guys listening to this podcast and, and some of these academics have seen is that um, these guys are getting uh, all sorts of like hormonal and, and motivational issues and also like distraction and like not inability to have 
communicative, uh, real relationships with women and, and even good sex with them due to overuse of porn. So it was kind of good to hear that you found uh, value in porn and you've been you know, using it to enhance your life. So I wanted you to kind of bring that up and how it's worked for you. Well, the, the real thing that you need to think about with porn is first, uh, as a consumer, I think too often we'll just slide over to one of the many porn tube websites like uh, Uporn and just call up something and watch it and jerk off and be done with it. And that's very disposable. And there's some value there, but really it's all about this is what I do to jerk off today. That's really it. The problem with those sites is that they really reinforce ethically shaky porn. And by ethically shaky, I mean underpaid women, uh, difficult to work with producers, all the way up to really bad experiences where people are being blackmailed to continue in porn or aren't being paid or are being filmed without their knowledge and then coerced into giving consent. So there's, there's a lot of darkness in the porn industry. And a lot of that is uh, produced right here in America. And uh, it's, it's troubling. So the best thing you can do is to reinforce the good porn producers and find someone who does things ethically. And there's a lot of amazing porn coming out of California right now. There's a lot of amazing porn coming out from feminist porn production companies, essentially. And feminist is a scary word for a lot of people, but it's, it's just, when it comes to feminist porn, what it means is the women there are there because they want to be there and they're doing things that they want to be doing in the porn and they're being treated well. In, in the porn. So why wouldn't we want any of those things? And there's so much to be learned from that kind of porn, because I also find it is progressive. It is exploratory. It's unexpected. Do you have any examples of sites? Some of the best porn I've seen have been on, there's a site called Crashpad, which by and large is fairly queer porn. Uh, and if you want anything hetero, well, by queer, I, I don't mean just gay men. I mean, uh, girl on girl, girl on guy on girl. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of trans porn on there. It, it's, it's one of my favorite sites, but one of the greatest ways to learn from porn is, uh, to look at Jessica Drake, which is, she's an amazing porn actress and, and now writer and director has a series called Jessica Drake's guide to wicked sex which has um, education and porn. And Tristan Terramino, which is one of my favorite porn uh, directors, does educational porn that also is porn. So she has a video on, on my favorite sex act, which is pegging, which is a girl wearing a strap-on fucking me in the ass. And it's my favorite because I can have prostate orgasms, which are a whole long discussion. But she has a video, uh, it's Tristan Terramino's Ultimate Guide to Pegging, and for about 45 minutes, she talks about the how-tos. But then you get to watch all the porn that was made while producing this video, and there's an hour and a half of pegging porn after that. And it's hot, and it's sexy, and it's educational, and it's surprising. We box ourselves in with porn, too, because traditional porn is, okay, the 
the girl's going to suck his cock. Then they're going to fuck for a while. Then maybe they're going to do anal. Then he's going to pull out and come on our tits, come on our face, whatever. That's not surprising at all. There's really very little educational value there. There's nothing to be learned. Because not only is there nothing to be learned by what's actually happening on camera, there's also negatives to be learned by what's not being shown, like the extensive lubing and prepping before anal, which is so often skipped in porn because it's, it's a longer process and we don't have time for that. We are aiming to come right now. But the most interesting thing I've seen recently is there's a film called Marriage 2.0. And you can get it on uh, Adam and Eve's video on demand site. And it's produced by the same guy, written and produced by the same guy who did Open Invitation, which was a San Francisco-based, swinger-based porno. That was, uh, it was a story, and then it had scenes shot at an actual swinger club. And Marriage 2.0 is really rather revolutionary because it is hardcore porn. And there are some really really sexy scenes in it, uh, both um, straightforward sex scenes and a really intense bondage and masochistic scene in the middle. And it's got a wonderful story and it's full of porn actors that I've seen and, and really like. Uh, Dylan Ryan is one of my favorite porn stars and she's uh, just amazing in it you see a real story about a couple exploring non-monogamy and learning about non-monogamy and learning how to deal with the problems that can come up as well as really, really hot porn. So it, it, I, I really highly recommend that one. Great. Great. Thank you for those recommendations. Very useful. So is it because you learn new ideas from porn or how do you use this? And could it be used as a tool for others? Like if they're exploring their sexuality? Yeah. It's you can see things that you hadn't thought of, but the only way you see things you hadn't thought of is by exploring porn that is less traditional because traditional is just showing you the same thing, cookie cutter and less traditional porn doesn't mean if you're a hetero guy, you should suddenly start watching gay porn, though you, you might learn something from that too. But it means that you should just be less afraid of, uh, less afraid of the term queer porn. Absolutely. Uh, because it doesn't always mean what you think it means, you know? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I I was very much a guy who just would watch the quick porn and just so I could jerk off and come and be done. And and again, there is definitely a a good place for that. But if we want people to continue producing better and better porn, and if we feel strongly about the women in porn being treated well and honestly, I feel we should all feel strongly about that, then the only way to get that to happen is to continually support the people who are making the porn where these women are treated well and the porn where they're doing interesting things. And the way to support them is to pay for your porn. I think it's a great idea, like you're saying, that the, the women can explore their own sexual interests because then it starts to reflect a good educational model like you, you were demonstrating earlier by the examples you gave where, you know, it's educational for guys as well. Whereas some of the other porn can give them an unhealthy bias towards stuff that a lot of women aren't going to be into. Although, of course, like a lot of porn stars tend to have um, slightly more extreme tastes. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. True also. But it's still way better if they've actually chosen um, and designed these acts themselves as something they're interested in. Definitely. 
So another practical topic I wanted to bring up is STI safety, sexual transmitted diseases. We've spoken about them before, uh, people have different takes. I was just wondering how you handle it in the swing set today and if you've done it differently previously. By and large, at the beginning, I swang, uh, I, I did my sexually transmitted infection prevention the way other swingers did it. And the way other swingers did it was it was condoms for any penetrative sex, penis and vagina, penis and anus. Otherwise, hands, tongues, whatever, free to roam how they see fit. I'm a hypochondriac, and I believe I have everything the moment I hear about uh, a sexually transmitted infection. God forbid I stumble on WebMD. I am convinced I have it. And I noticed that it was happening a lot after swing dates where I would essentially be counting down the incubation period for herpes and then feeling phantom symptoms of herpes. Okay. <laughs> Sounds very bad. Not a nice experience. To be clear, I am tested negative on HSV one and two, and I have conversations with my partners about their testing, which is very important. Getting tested regularly and having the conversation about when you were tested and what you were tested for. Very important. And we all should be doing it, especially those just out dating, because honestly, Statistically, and I don't have solid data to back this up, but a lot of uh, places have suggested this is the case, is swingers have less instances of sexually transmitted infections than monogamous young people. I can believe that. And I can, I can absolutely believe that. Yeah. It's because we talk about it. And that's so important. I guess as we were talking about the, like the positive pre peer pressure with sexuality, there's also positive peer pressure for the the sexual transmitted infections. Yeah. Too. Well, we are we are definitely responsible for the safety of our community, and the more safe we can play, the better off our community is, and that's that's true of the entire sexual community in general. But what changed for me is a few things. First, is I don't think herpes is a big deal at all. And everybody I know who has herpes realized that it was a terrifying thing. And there was a big stigma when they heard about it, but ultimately it has not affected their life very much. But that said, if you don't have it, you probably don't want it. The thing is, almost all of us, almost the entire world has herpes. They just call it cold sores. And the problem is there it used to be HSV2 was genital, HSV1 was oral. In general, doctors have stopped differentiating because now HSV1 is happy to go to genitals and HSV2 is happy to go to the lips. And the reason that's happening is unprotected oral sex. So if you look at it that 80% of people have oral herpes. Then there's that risk, yeah. Yeah, and, and you're not protecting your genitals when they're going down on you? You very well might get genital herpes. So how do you protect yourself today? Uh, I wear a condom when I'm getting a blowjob, and I use a dental dam, which is a, a sheet of polyurethane or a sheet of latex that I, I put over the vulva or the anus, depending on what I am enjoying licking at the moment. 
I've never used one of those things. I was just wondering if it's like, um, the dental dam. Is it just uncomfortable? I've, like me personally, I just refrained from cunnilingus, oral sex, giving the girl oral until I'm in a relationship and we get tested. That's my approach to it. Because those things just looked kind of crazy when I Googled them. <laughs> to be quite honest, I was like, <laughs> the, I don't see myself pulling that out. A condom, yes, but... No, honestly, they're a little unwieldy. And if you've never seen someone use one, they are a little confusing. There's also some terrifying pictures so, if you Google image. It's, it's, they look <laughs> like dentistry. Uh, the, they definitely have... I mean, having the word dental attached to them is probably not in their best interest. Because they are very much suggesting... What I recommend for people, if dental dams are frightening and unwieldy, is you get some some non-porous uh, plastic cling wrap and pull off a big old sheet of it, press it down over the area you're working with. It's thin. It's uh, definitely more protection than not having anything. And while the FDA won't tell you that it is safer sex. It is safer sex. We all know that. And the nice thing about that is you can see the entire vulva and you, and if you have a big sheet, you can press your, you, a little bit inside. So you have areas to work with. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Does it make oral sex less fun? Yeah. A little bit, just like condoms make penetrative sex less fun a little bit. But just like condoms might help save you from dying, because they might. There's a thing going around right now called antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what that was when I read it in your book. Could you? Explain? Oh yeah, it's it's uh it's cropping up more and more. Okay, so what happens for people at home like when you get antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea? Well, it I mean it can do a number of things to you. It, it can cause sterility. It can. Um, the worst thing, it, it, it's one of those that, uh, you know, when it burns, when you pee, yeah, it's one of those. And the worst part is they don't ever check your throat for it. And that's where it can hang out. It can be transmitted from genitals to the mouth and the throat. And if it's hanging out in your throat and you don't know about it, or it's hanging out in your partner's throat and they don't know about it and they're giving you oral sex and they're giving this person oral sex. And if it's antibiotic resistant, that means it's harder and harder and harder to cure. I only needed to hear that once to completely shift to I'm going to use protection to never, ever, ever get this. Because I don't want that, you know, as, as much as we destigmatize herpes, which deserves to be destigmatized, syphilis, gonorrhea. Syphilis is a really bad one. And it's been coming back, back also because of oral sex and also because of oral sex. That's why it's been spreading more. I mean, syphilis um, used to drive people crazy. Right. It'll, it'll destroy your brain if you don't catch it. So, and there is some, uh, some link, uh, in oral sex to HIV transmission. And it's not a big one. And a lot of people use that as their reason to not worry about it. Oh, it's a, such a low percentage. And that's true. But wouldn't you hate to be the 0.01% that gets it? Yeah, it's it's just not worth doing. So there's a bit of peer pressure around um, when you talk about you bring out a condom or <laughs> imagine even more peer. Like uh, if you're just with a girl recently 
and she hasn't had experience with having oral sex. So you're in a community where it sounds like the rule is that it's okay to have oral sex without uh, condoms. I've had the same, like, I'd say that's kind of mainstream, right? So the rest of the world, if, yeah, you, if you pull yeah. out, if I think if, very few people are, are doing oral sex. Right, right. So if you pull out a condom when a girl says she wants to give you a blowjob, um, her normal reaction is like, are you kidding? I mean, I've had that a few times. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and then they're fine with it. Um, so I just want, how do you deal with like, does that happen in a swing set community? I've only been told no once. And she said, I'm not giving you a blowjob with the condom on. And I said, okay, I guess we're not doing blowjobs then. And she was sort of shocked that I would give up a blowjob. Right. Yeah. She, she was, she was uh, like, oh, okay, down. I'll just take it off. And I think, I think that's, that's such a bad assumption and that's such a bad precedent, which is the same thing as, oh, I don't really like wearing condoms for penetrative sex. Oh, okay. Let's not do it. That's bullshit. And, and frankly, I don't want to say stupid, but I'm going to, I'm going to say that's stupid because you can, you can even having the conversation about testing. And even if my partner tested last week and tested negative there's such a thing as incubation period where things don't show up hiv especially does not show up for a couple months and during that time when it's not showing up it is actually it's most virulent and most willing to jump from host to host as simple as people don't test for hsv1 and 2 yeah it's it's scary stuff have you come across any uh, good people experts on the topic, I've looked like because it seems like a lot of them are like overly academic and often kind of specialized versus someone who's just really up to date on the research and can talk about it in a practical way. There are a lot of people in the sex positive community that I, I really look up to. Uh, Reed Mahalko is a is an amazing sex and relationship educator. Um, Charlie Glickman is one of my favorites. He talks a lot about um, male anal stimulation, prostate play. I look at the people who write a lot about other things because they have a way of taking the new information because the CDC's websites are incredibly hard to comprehend and, and incredibly hard to get any value from because right. It's, it's hard to understand what the situation is. Well, and the worst part about those sites is the way they recommend keeping safe is limiting your sex partners. And that's actually something I'm just not going to do. So Give me other things, you know, and condom usage definitely cuts down on the vast majority of things. I mean, while it may not stop herpes or HPV from transmitting, it gives you a much higher fighting chance. And it's just these little things that we can be doing. And so you find educators, read uh, the, the educators that are fun for you. And that's why I like Reed and I like Charlie and I like Tristan a lot. Because they're fun and they recognize that we want to have sex and we don't necessarily feel like monogamy is the solution to our not getting SDI problem. Cool. We had Reed on the show actually about 50 episodes back. He's amazing. Um, yeah, I, he's a fun guy. I love that guy. Yeah. Very cool. What are the best ways to connect with you? Are you on Twitter? Where were you active? I am. I'm all over Twitter. I, I'm at Swingset Life on Twitter. Uh, you can connect with me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash cooper.beckett. My personal website is coopersbeckett.com. 
And if you are interested in sexuality podcasts, I run the Swingset FM network. It's swingset.fm. And we've got a number of sex-based podcasts, including um, Life on the Swing Set, which is the one I host. And that's the one that's predominantly about uh, non-monogamy. I also host two goofy TV podcasts, one for NBC's Hannibal and one for Twin Peaks, if you're into that sort of thing. You can buy the book at mylifeontheswingset.com. And you can buy it other places too, but it, it is independently published. I did this all myself. So if you appreciate that kind of thing and you want to throw a few bucks directly in my pocket, go to mylifeonthesswingset.com to buy it. So there's all my stuff. Great, great. So last question, quick fire here. What are your top three recommendations to guys who are just starting out in their like sexual exploration or like kind of down this path, something like you've been and you found that to be the most useful for you. What has been the top three tips you would give out to them? This is going to be like a recap. Uh, so first ask for what you want, because it's always better to ask for something and not get it than not ask and not get it. Second, be open to things you didn't know you wanted. And third, respect the hell out of women. They've had a really tough time, and it's because men have done really shitty things to them. So get consent for anything you want to do, and just really listen to what the women are actually saying to you about what they actually want and don't want. Those are my tips. Excellent. Thank you very much, Cooper. And it's been great talking to you. Really enjoyed it. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Great. And congratulations on your book. It was a, it was a fun read. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life. Step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.